How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend that I don't, right? <laughs> hold now. it in, hold And our current faves. In. Luffy must have his due. <laughs> Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. Oof. I remember, what was that? <laughs> say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast, an audio-guided walk, featuring many of London's untold, unsolved and long-forgotten murders, all set within London's West End. Today's episode is about Elizabeth Wakefield, an elderly widow desperate to remarry for fear of being left on the shelf, and when left with very few options, she moved in with an angry drunken maniac who had attempted to murder his entire family. But who was worse, the widow or her killer? Murder Mile is researched using the original police files. It contains moments of satire, shock and grisly details. And as a dramatization of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds, so that no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 69, The Abominable Mr. and Mrs. Cox. Today, I'm standing on Calthorpe Street, WC1, two streets east of the square where the body parts of Louis Vracine's mistress were dumped. Three streets south of the warehouse where the corpse hero, Glyndor Michael, began his infamous second life. And 200 feet west of the hostel where Reg Christie spent his last night of freedom. As well as being just streets away from the King's Cross fire, the 7-7 bus bombing, and the untold stories of the victims of the Camden Ripper. Coming soon 
to Murdermile. Calthorpe Street is a quiet residential street with three-storey Georgian terrace houses on both sides of a curved street. Access to a basement flat instead of a front garden, white stucco on the ground floor walls, brown brick above, and shielded by wrought iron railings, with a set of thick stone steps leading up to a single front door. Whereas once, these were pauper's houses at a cost of £3.10 shillings a week. Now, each flat sells for nearly £1 million apiece. With almost no traffic, no people, no pets, nor plants, very little happens here. It's the epitome of the modern middle classes, where everything is about style over substance. And the only noise you'll hear is the infuriating squeak of a vintage bike. The only smell is freshly baked bread, sprayed from an aerosol. And the only sound is the incessant whine of spoiled little bastards, moaning, Daddy, I want a guava kale and avocado demi-capu baby chino. As long lines of so-called yummy mummies dump their precious little sprogs onto a ragged au pair to torture their uptight tots with a strict rigorous regime of wanky pretentious pap. Like baby yoga, toddler zumba and Latin for little ones. All while Mummy complains about how I simply don't have time to myself. Having engaged in 10 hours of lunches and lithium, tiffin and tranquilizers, pampering and Prozac. And although the first floor flat of 46 Calthorpe Street seems like a nice little home for what I hope is a loving and happy couple, it was here on Friday the 26th of December 1947 in a fit of rage, where Frederick Cox ended the life of Elizabeth Wakefield, the woman who was to become his wife. Elizabeth Henrietta Wakefield had a hard life from the day she was born until the day she died. Born in Hoxton Slum in 1881, as one of six children raised by a housewife and a labourer who shared one house with three families. Elizabeth Henrietta Claxton, also known as Elsie, was impoverished, uneducated and unskilled. Living in fear of sickness, starvation or the pauper's prison and denied a career, Elsie's only chance of survival was by marriage to a man whose babies she would bear. But as she was never the prettiest, the brightest, or the wittiest, her choice of spouse would be strictly limited. In 1898, aged 17, Elsie met Herbert Wakefield, a warehouseman in a Shoreditch tannery. After six months, they were engaged. After 12 months, they were married. And after 18 more months, their first child was born, swiftly followed by five more. So with Herbert, Elsie, Bertie, Albert, Leonard, Doris, Gladys and Elizabeth, as well as two lodgers, all squeezed into a single ground floor flat at 15 Danbury Street in Islington. Like many large families living off a single unsteady income, life was tough. On the 24th of November 1926, after 27 years together, 
and having raised six children, all of whom had moved out, Herbert died. With no savings, no pension, no income and no home, as Herbert was her everything, now she had nothing. And whereas once, her big bosom and childbearing hips were her best features, as a 5 foot 2 inch, 18 stone and 45 year old widow, with wiry grey hair, ragged clothes, a deeply lined face and her infertile body battered by 11 pregnancies, Elsie was no longer the woman she once was. So having spruced herself up, brushed her hair down, and shaved a full decade off her age, the new 35-year-old Elsie Henrietta Wakefield set off to seek out a new man to fill her life. But who? Frederick John Cox was born in 1895, 15 years after Elsie's birth although he wouldn't know that. Having been abandoned and raised by a hackney couple who he called Mr. and Mrs. Cope, his birthday, his hometown and his biological parents were all unknown. All that was known was that having been the byproduct of an unwanted pregnancy and a difficult birth, which left the bowling ball-shaped boy with stubby arms, a conical head and a chronic stutter. From the day he was born, Fred was unloved. Feeling very much like an outsider and seeking some kind of stability in his rotten little life, having left school with a basic education, on the 29th of September 1912, aged 17, Fred married his first love, Eliza May Newby in a union swiftly followed by four baby daughters, Amy and Sissy. Described as a decent dad, a good husband and a solid provider, having built his own family, he should have been happy. But riddled with a fear of abandonment, Fred was moody, jealous and controlling. That year, as a sturdy young man with rough hands, a thick neck, and a solid knowledge of engines, Fred enlisted in the Royal Navy. Serving through the First World War as a stoker on board a C-class British submarine, although he took part in some truly dangerous missions, while stuck in the dark and claustrophobic bowels of a submerged steel can, surrounded by fuel, fumes, and the crushing pressures of the sea, Fred loved his job, his crew, his ship, and best of all, the boozy camaraderie. Fred had two families, one at home and one at sea. In April 1918, while submerged off the English coast, one of the submarine's four-stroke engines suffered a minor failure. It lost propulsion and the ship drifted deeper under the stormy sea. As a relatively new technology, breakdowns were common and accidents were often. But as the engineer sought to fix the fault, a fuel line snapped and the 150-foot ship swiftly filled with a toxic mix of deadly gases. Forced to resurface, having blown its ballast and popped the hatch to refill the noxious compartments with fresh breathable air, the ship was abandoned, 
The crew were rescued, and thankfully no one died. But several of the crew were injured, one of whom was Fred. In March 1919, after seven years' service, Frederick John Cox was medically discharged from the Royal Navy. As although he was physically fit, from this point on, his brain would be plagued with headaches, nausea, memory loss and mood swings, all of which he would pacify with alcohol. Granted a tiny compensation, having risked his life for his country, Fred returned home to London, to his wife, to his daughters, and to a new and uneventful life as a vanguard for the Great Northern Railway. As before, his work record was excellent. He was a loving husband and a doting father, but only when he was sober. Drinking to dull his pain, the booze turned Fred into a very different person. And whereas once he was moody, jealous and controlling, the alcohol made him tearful, paranoid and angry. And having now been rejected by three families, his biological parents, his foster family and the Royal Navy, his fears of abandonment once again came full circle as he began to mistrust his job, his wife and his life. After 15 unhappy years together, on Thursday the 3rd of November 1927, their marriage took a dark turn. That morning, Eliza Cox, Fred's long-suffering wife, turned to her mother and said, I'm going to leave him. I can't stand it any longer. If you don't take me in, I shall take the kids and walk into the streets. With no other option, Eliza and her two young daughters packed up their few belongings and moved into her mum's pokey little second-floor flat, a few doors down, at number 60. Six ladies, squeezed into one tight space, with Eliza, Amy and Sissy in one small room, and Eliza's 63-year-old widowed mother Lily and her two spinster sisters, Sarah Jane and Florence, in the other. At 4.15pm, having finished a long night shift at Haggerston Gasworks, and popped to the pub to quell his throbbing head, being steaming drunk, Fred staggered home. Only his home was empty and his wife and kids were gone. Seething with rage, as Fred staggered up the cold stone stairs of Cornwall Cottages, stormed along the second floor balcony which circled the outside of the four-story tenement block and as he reached the wooden front door of number 60, he banged hard, hollering, Eliza! Eliza! Spotting his wife, as he shoved Lily aside, a bitter slanging match ensued in the kitchen as Eliza and Fred screamed at each other. The fearsome mum shielded her sobbing daughters as their drunken dad ranted and stumbled, spitting venom and slamming his fist into a cabinet. And as tears streamed down his fuming face, Eliza tossed the key at Fred's head and screamed, I'm finished! We're over! That was it. 34 years of abandonment had been boiled down into just two words. 
spat by an angry wife at her drunken husband in the heat of passion. Whether she meant it or not, we may never know. But as his fear of abandonment once again came full circle, with his reddened eyes glazed, his throat sore, and his fists tightly clenched, with that, Fred snapped. From behind, as he grabbed a fistful of her hair and yanked it back hard, as she screamed, her head tilted back, stretching the pale muscles of her exposed neck. From his jacket pocket, Fred pulled out a white ivory handle, which looked innocent enough. But with a quick flick, it flipped out his shaving razor. And as the six-inch blade buried deep into her flesh, he slit his wife's throat from ear to ear, ripping open her wailing windpipe as red bubbles of blood popped from the gaping wound in her neck. And yet Fred wasn't finished. As Eliza slumped to the floor, wheezing, bleeding and struggling to breathe, with his frenzied attack having only just begun, Fred aimed his razor again at his wife's throat. Only being desperate to defend her mum, as 12-year-old Florence grabbed the razor and the super-sharp blade sheared off the top of her right thumb, she sprawled herself across the choking Eliza, using her own body as a human shield. As the four remaining women frantically grappled with Fred, seizing his eldest daughter, as he slashed wildly, the blade sliced through Amy's upper lip, split open her right cheek, and narrowly missed the soft jelly of her right eye. Lily yanked Fred backwards, but spinning fast, Fred hit her hard in the face with the razor, knocking her to the ground and severing her facial nerve. With blood splashed and splattered up the walls, door and the floor, as Sarah Ann dashed out of the flat, screaming for the police, Fred grabbed her right leg, and as she tripped, a single fast slice slashed off the top of her ear, it split apart her cheek, and ripped open her nose. And only then, with the neighbours alerted, and as crowds converged, Fred's frenzied attack suddenly ceased. And shaking with panic terror, as he surveyed the bloody aftermath, with six women screaming, both daughters bleeding, and his wife, now ghostly white and barely conscious, as his face flushed with shame and his eyes filled with tears, Fred stuttered, I'm sorry, and slit his own throat. Several people were rushed to the Royal Free Hospital. Lily, Amy, Sissy, Sarah Ann and Florence needed nothing more than a few stitches. Although Eliza was listed as critical, suffering a severed windpipe, and Fred, having sliced open his superior thyroid artery, having lost several pints of blood, miraculously, they both survived. For the rest of their lives, they each had their own scars. So whenever Fred looked at his wife and his kids, from this day until the day he died, the man he would become would always be haunted by the man he once was.
on the 28th of November 1927, having been discharged from hospital, Fred fully confessed to his crimes and was charged with the attempted murder of his wife, two daughters, the wounding of others, and a failed suicide. And for the weeks that followed, he wept for their forgiveness. He knew he didn't deserve it, but as the saying goes, the Lord works in mysterious ways. On the 10th of December 1927, with Eliza still in critical condition, although she was unable to talk and could only articulate in gestures, as a deeply religious woman raised as a good Catholic, bafflingly, the appropriately named Reverend Cock convinced her not to give evidence against her husband. On the 2nd of February 1928, Frederick John Cox pleaded guilty to all charges at the Old Bailey and was found guilty of attempted murder. But with his wife appealing for leniency, his daughters haven't forgiven him and with Fred promising to quit drinking, he was sentenced to just 12 months in prison. And he served only eight Released from prison just shy of Christmas 1928, Fred kept his promise, and having quit the booze, he started work at the Gas and Coke Company in Stoke Newington, moved back into the family home at 20 Cornwall Cottages, and once again became a decent dad, a good husband, and a solid provider. So much so, that they even added to their brood with a third daughter, Doreen. And then, ten years later, with his headaches pounding harder, his anger slowly rising, and the dreaded booze once again swirling about his blood, seeing the deep jagged scars across his family's faces and throats, which made him seethe. Having threatened them several times before, on the 27th of June 1938, Fred upped and left. For the sake of their safety, to protect them from pain, and to defend them from death, as a violent and emotional drunk, with no control over his actions, Fred walked out on his family. And although he paid her a weekly maintenance without fail, Eliza and her daughters never saw him ever again. Fred was a broken man, drunk, lost and in pain. Gripped by fears of abandonment, which had plagued him since birth, being rejected by his parents, his foster family, the Royal Navy, and now turning his back on his wife and kids for fear of his rage once again coming full circle, Fred was alone. What he wanted was love, but being a moody drunken boozer with a quick temper an unsightly eight-inch scar slashed across his neck, and a criminal conviction for the attempted murder of his entire family, who he had since deserted. What woman would actually want him? No one would, unless they were desperate. One woman was, and her name was Elizabeth Wakefield. Nicknamed Elsie, 
The last twelve years after her late husband's death hadn't been kind to her. As being in and out of a series of bad relationships, she was still a penniless widow with no trade, skills, or income, who lived off her six grown-up children, as she struggled to find herself a new husband. When she met forty-two-year-old Fred, she said she was forty-seven, but by then she was nearer to sixty. And with her portly frame several stone heavier, her grey, wiry hair thinning, and the deep lines of her reddened face bloated and ravaged by booze, Elsie looked a sorry sight. Fred and Elsie were two broken people looking for love. Having found happiness together, they moved into a small single room on the first floor of 46 Calthorpe Street at the back of King's Cross. And with plans to eventually marry, the couple would refer to each other as Mr. and Mrs. Cox. But life together was far from harmonious. Ten years later, with Fred bringing in their only income, whilst working as a plant attendant for the gas and coke company in Fulham, with Elsie being unmarried and infertile, believing she no longer had a purpose in life. She became a full-blown alcoholic. Life was difficult, as living in one room, twelve feet deep by fifteen feet wide, with just enough space for a gas stove, a wash basin, and a small horsehair bed, lived a violent ex-convict and an angry boozer. And although their neighbour described Fred as a pleasant man who was calm, loving, and kind. She described Elsie as bad-tempered, aggressive, and seldom sober, with a police record to prove it. In this sparse, tiny space, the abominable Mister and Missus Cox would live, and this is also where she would die. Christmas Day of 1947 brought thick snow to Calthorpe Street, but no love. No happiness and no joy. Rising at 4 a.m., as 52-year-old Fred trudged out to work an eight-hour shift, Elsie, who claimed to be 57, but was now nearer 70, and looked every day of it, slept off another hangover. Arriving back at 4 p.m., Fred found the flat empty, the fire off, the festive food eaten. And under a pitiful little Christmas tree, his present to her unwrapped, and not a single gift left for him. But then that was Elsie, rude and selfish. By the time Fred got to Grey's Inn Road, and squeezed amongst the swearing, sweaty throng of reeking reprobates at the Yorkshire Grey Public House, having boozed heavily at the mechanic's larder. And the Packenham Arms all day. Elsie was broke, blind drunk, and dressed in the fur-lined neck shawl he had bought her. Without so much as a thank you, having pounds to pound off Fred as she knocked back a swift succession of red wines, whiskies, and bitters, the more bladdered she got, the ruder, nastier, and more abusive she became. At closing time. Being too blotto to stand, Fred carried Elsie 
the 300 yards back home, where he made her a cup of tea and put her to bed. And as he sat alone by the fire, he nursed his throbbing head, unsure whether those familiar sharp pains were caused by her constant nagging, an ailment from his navy days, or the 20 years worth of noxious fumes he had inhaled at the gas and coke company. And that was his Christmas day. Friday the 26th of December 1947 was more of the same. An early start, followed by four hours of travelling, eight hours of working, and six hours of nagging. As a fuming Elsie and her freeloading chums quaffed back several gins, all on his coin, and with his head royally pounding, at a little after 10pm, having had enough of Elsie's selfish and abusive antics, Fred called it a night and headed home. All the while, yards behind, Elsie staggered, seething and spitting. And that was his boxing day. Arriving back at their first floor flat, just shy of 10.30pm, with Fred now a moderate drinker, who was so used to her abuse, throughout he kept his cool, knowing she would pass out soon enough. Only Elsie didn't back down, as seeing his packed suitcases by the door, she was fired up and furious. Elsie, he stated, we're over. That was it. 67 years of abandonment had been boiled down to just two words. And whether he meant it or not, we may never know. But as her fears once again came full circle, with her reddened eyes glazed, her throat raw, and her fists tightly clenched, with that, Elsie snapped. Lunging at Fred, as her tatty nails clawed at his face, and her brown teeth teared at his skin. Struggling, they slipped and slumped onto the floor, thrashing and screaming, with him on top of her. Her fists repeatedly pounding the throbbing head of a violent ex-convict. And as all of his pain and pent-up rage boiled, instinctively, he grabbed the fur-lined shawl, which was draped around her neck, and with straining fists, as he glared into her bloated, screaming face, he pulled the cords tighter, and with her screams muffled, her breathing weak, and her swollen head turning from sickly pale to mottled red to ruptured purple. Her lips went blue, her eyes went black, and as her chunky little legs slowly stopped twitching, Elsie Wakefield, his wife-to-be, was dead. Shaking with panic terror, as painful memories of how he had once tried to murder his family came flooding back, as his face flushed with shame and his eyes filled with tears, Fred stuttered, I'm sorry. And once again, with his six-inch shaving razor, he slit open his own throat. Weeping and destroyed, as a tearful Fred placed a pillow under the head of his slowly cooling Elsie, he lay beside her bleeding and awaiting his death. Only, after almost a whole day of lying next to his cold beloved, he didn't die. Racked with guilt, 
At 11.50 a.m. on Saturday the 28th of December 1947, Fred handed himself in at Gray's Inn Police Station. He made a full confession and gave a written statement. Frederick John Cox was tried at the Old Bailey on the 9th of February 1948. With Elsie being deceased, unlike with his ex-wife Eliza, she was unable to refuse to give evidence or to ask for leniency owing to an interfering priest. So having pleaded guilty to the charge of manslaughter by grounds of provocation, Fred was sentenced to seven years penal servitude, which he served at Pentonville Prison. By all accounts, prison was okay. It gave him a job, a uniform, a routine, and just like the Royal Navy, a family. So with the camaraderie he craved, an alcohol-free diet, and a steel gate separating him from the world outside, with no one left to love, and being sat in a solitary cell, never again would he be abandoned. Fred died in 1963, and to the best of my knowledge, he never remarried. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. For all murky milers, please stay tuned to hear about how sweaty this episode was to record in the latest riveting instalment of Extra Mile. But before that, here's my recommended podcasts of the week. Something happened in the home. Someone possibly was killed there, at least one person, and uh, then they disappeared. Texas is known for being tough on crime and those who commit it, or at least the ones who get caught. There are monsters among us. 60% of violent crimes in Texas go unsolved, and a majority of victims rarely make the headlines. Gone Cold Podcast, Texas True Crime, gives in-depth accounts of unsolved homicides and missing persons cases throughout the Lone Star State in an attempt to provide a voice for victims and their families. She was a loving person. That's why after 13 years, it's really bothering me still that nothing's been done, nobody's been found. Please join Gone Cold Podcast on your favorite podcatcher as we examine these forgotten and often underreported crimes. You really have to pray and hope for those people that really know something. I'm Heather. And I'm Rochelle. And, and we're, we're the hosts of Nature vs. Narcissism, a true crime podcast mixed with some dark humor. Sometimes we have alcohol. Sometimes we have guests. Sacramento, California. Canton, Michigan. Green River, Honolulu, Hawaii. Omaha, Nebraska. Niagara, North Dakota. Gloucester, United Kingdom. Dakota County, Wyoming. Epizoyacan, Hidalgo. Mexico, Flint, Michigan, Boston, Massachusetts, Phoenix, Arizona, Woodruff, South Carolina, Edmonton, New York, Hudson Valley, New York. In season two, we will examine notorious killers in cities across the globe from A to Z. We'll delve into their criminal history as well as their upbringing to try to determine why these killers commit these violent acts. Was it nature? Was it nurture? Or was, or was it, it plain old narcissism? narcissism? Find us on your favorite podcast streaming service or visit murder.ly.
huge thank you goes out to my new Patreon supporters, who are Apenthesis and Emily L. I thank you, as well as a special thank you to an unnamed friend of the podcast for treating me to a PayPal pint. Burp. I thank you. As a special treat to you all, until the end of August 2019, you can get a whopping 20% of all Murder Mile merchandise via the merch shop on everything from ebooks to mugs to badges, etc. To receive this, simply type Call Me Reg 20. That's Call Me Reg with no spaces and the number 20 where it says voucher code at the checkout. I've put a link in the show notes. And don't forget, if you want to see the murder locations as they look, every Thursday I upload a blog for each episode with a map, location videos, photos, etc. Likewise, there is a link in the show notes. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening and sleep well. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Okay, good. Oops. Oh, my God. <coughs> oh, that was it. That's the start of it. Extra mile. Oh, dear Lord. Hello, everyone. How are you? Oh, God. You left that. That was an early one. That was so. Uh, oh. Welcome to Extra Mile. Uh, new people. This is the unscripted bit, unedited. Uh, no sound effects. No music. This is just me giving you information about the story you just heard. Uh, I'm sounding a bit tired today because it's barely, barely about to approach seven a.m. Um, I'm recording this on the day. Well, I did it the day afterwards, but yesterday was 38 degrees here and inside inside the the boat it was 47 degrees it was getting close to 49 it was really hot uh so i woke up really early this morning i thought if i leave all the windows and doors open overnight and then i can wake up about get up about five and start recording so i did that before it starts to get really hot because i could feel the sun creeping in already so i'm yeah so i'm a bit tired i'm gonna open up some windows and make a cup of tea Oh dear lord. Oh, tired.
tired. Oh, that's nice. A bit of fresh air. Uh, so, cup of tea going on. Gotta be done. Gotta have a cup of tea, haven't I? Uh, got some Rocky Road. Rocky Road. Uh, to treat myself to as well. What are they? I don't know whether they're brownies or whatever, but they uh, they look very nice. So I think I'll have one of those. Give myself a bit of energy. Uh, cup of tea going in. PG, as always. For some reason I'm using Demerara sugar. I bought it a while ago because it's all they had left. I've been having Demerara sugar in my tea. Ugh, it's not nice. Not as nice as good old white sugar. Uh, uh, and yeah, powdered milk, of course, because it's too hot to have regular milk. Oh, dear Lord. So yeah, it's been really hot here. Uh, I bought some ice the other day so I could uh, have a drink and cool it down a bit. And I put the ice bag on the in the sink. And then I went away to do a bit of work and an hour later I came back and it was hot water, it was it had gone tepid. That's how hot it was, so yeah. I bought some margarine, I haven't got a fridge, but I put it somewhere cool and that turned to liquid within like about about half a day. So yeah, it's really hot here. Uh, so, oh dear lord, oh, okay. oh, this is gonna be the yawny extra mile. So yeah, this is, uh, hope you enjoyed that. My brain's not working. So uh, where am I? I'm, uh, I've d I moved yesterday. I'm in a new place. I'm in a, a place kind of, uh, this is normally the end of my journey. Uh, it's, it's all right here, but you've got, you've got, when you're here, you've got to get up really early to, to, to do recording because there's a train line, uh, not too far from me. And that, that I can hear the trains going past the planes are flying over. There's a rowing club next to me and they all get up. They all start doing their rowing about half six. So the boat starts rocking and you have some, some guy and they go, you know, there's just yeah, stupid boats with the little people in. What are they called? Do you like on the, on the boat race where you have uh, the posh university versus posh university and no one gives a crap. It's, uh, people in America, we have a thing called boat race. It's pointless. It's Cambridge versus Oxford. They do a boat race. Only two universities are allowed in. And it's been going on for 140 years, whatever. And either one wins or the other. It's absolutely pointless. And we have the junior version of that practicing outside my boat. And they're really annoying. I'm going to open another window, another door as well. I need some lots of fresh air. So they're here. Uh, and also, uh, there's, uh, I've, I've moored up here a couple of times, but there's a place just around the corner where you can rent, uh, you can rent boats, like little powered boats. Uh, so a lot of tourists come here and they can only, they can, it's really pointless. They can only go half a mile i'd say half a mile maximum that's all you're allowed to go and they go back and forth and they, they've got steering on them but the steering is pretty crap so all day long people are ramming into my boat or as i as i kind of hear them go you can hear them, them go as they struggle with steering because they don't understand that if you turn left you can go left so they see me staring at them and they go and they steer the other way uh so that's that so oh dear so, hope you enjoyed that. That was that episode. I've recorded that. This is, where are we now? I don't even know what day it is. This is 26th of June. Yeah, I'm trying to get myself quite a few episodes ahead. So, uh, yesterday, uh, uh, Meander Mile Part 1 went out. Hope you enjoyed that. It was something different. It seemed to get interesting. A lot of people seem to like that. So I thought that, that was that was interesting. It's not something I'll do regularly, but it's something I'll pull out every so often when I need 
uh, time to catch up because I'd I'd run out of time. I'd done done those ten episodes and then I'd run out of time, and I was like, oh shit, because you know my the Patreon episode goes out on the Monday, and I, I have to make sure I hit that mark, and I'd run out of time. So I popped uh, that one in the Soho one, and then tomorrow I'm going to record Meander Mile Covent Garden. Uh, so that will go out, uh, and I've already listened. To, I've already recorded and edited the episode that you already listened to last week, which is the Roberto Troyan episode. Uh, so yeah, this is the twenty fifth of June. So what? I don't know when you listen to this one. I think this is middle of August or something like that. So yeah, uh, I'm I'm in the past. I'm in the past. You're in the future. What is the future like? Do you have rocket boots? I hope so. Uh, am I still single in the future? Possibly. I think there's a big possibility there. Anyway, hope you enjoyed that. So yeah, I'm working on that now. I've just start, I've been researching the uh, episode seventy as well, which I think I'm looking forward to that one. I think they're all quite different. So that's what I'm trying to do. Uh, you, so you're having your, your your ten episodes coming up. So uh, so that should be good. This will uh, so so right. I don't have many notes about this. So I'm just checking time. Okay. I don't have a huge amount of notes, but let's go into this. So this was uh, the abominable Mr. and Mrs. Cox. Uh, I found this in in the National Archives. This was just another one of those uh, files that I pulled out by random. I thought, yep, that's near enough. Um, I had a look. Uh, the building, the still there. Oh, I got burpees. The building's still there. It's almost identical. You can see that they were all the kind of the old porpoise houses, but now they've been repurposed and now they're very posh houses uh the area calthorpe street about 10 years ago pretty grotty to be honest it was back of back of the mount pleasant sorting offices which was the 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 big postal sorting offices for the west end so it was where all the trucks would come in and you know it was pretty grotty back at king's cross but now uh just look even just looking at the the properties in that area like they've increased in value in the last 10 years by about like 300 percent so yeah, if you if you would have bought a, a little shitty little flat there a couple of couple of years ago, well done to you, well done. Uh, but this was this story. Uh, I quite enjoyed this one because I think it's got a bit of a twist in it. Where it took me a while to work that out though, to work that out because I, I focused a, a big part of the story was just the murder at the end. But uh, what was kind of interesting was um, in the original police file they focused a lot on the the end murder where he murdered. Uh, when he strangled his wife, his wife to be to death, but they kept making reference to the fact that he'd been charged once before, and that's all they really said, and there really wasn't much in there. So I, then I had to go back in, and I was like, I have, I found the uh, uh, the file didn't file in the old Bailey and his original police file, the one where he attempted to murder his uh, his family, and I thought that was quite interesting. So I quite enjoyed that, and then and then I managed to work out the connections afterwards that actually Elsie, his original wife. Uh, sorry, his, his second wife. No, it's not even his wife. His wife to be. Uh, that she was actually equally suffering with abandonment, like he was, and she was looking for someone to love, and he was looking for someone to love, and it's that kind of that weird chemistry that they came together. And she was an alcoholic. He was trying not to be an alcoholic. He had, you know, he had he had uh, uncontrolled violence. He was trying to keep it under lids. Kind of, he, she was who was the worst person for each other, him or her, and kind of, uh, you know. That chemistry was there that was... Had they not met, they probably would have done okay. He was... Here goes one of those boats. So annoying.
pointless people. Uh, one of those interesting stories about chemistry. So, yeah, uh, he was trying to keep his alcoholism under control. He was trying to keep his violence under control. He seemed to be in a good, solid work ethic. He was working regularly, you know. Um, she, she, unfortunately, um, grew up in an era where the only thing that she was really able to do was to to marry and have kids. And then the, she she had married, she had her kids, she was widowed. Her kids had all grown up, so basically her life was over, really. She hadn't got any skills, she couldn't do anything else. She was in that kind of an era. So uh, so they're both both really victims as much as each other, really, on this. So, uh, sad story for both of them. So, uh, what have I put here? I've put some, deep, some notes down for myself. Uh, oh yeah okay so I took this out of the story because it slowed it down but at the end so I mentioned at the end that um, what he'd done <coughs> uh, he'd, he'd strangled Elsie with the uh, the, the shoal the, the fur lined shoal or stole they keep referring to it as people can refer to it as a stole or a shoal but what it is is one of those kind of furry not quite scarf things that you drape around your neck. Uh, it's uh, whatever. We all know, we all know what it is. Don't need to get into details about that. But obviously, it had a bit of a cord in it to tie it around her neck to keep it. Uh, so he'd strangled her to death. Uh, she was dead. He was distraught. He realised that she was dead. Uh, all of his memories started flooding back about how he tried to murder his uh, his ex-wife. Although I can't find any evidence that they divorced. So technically she was still his wife. Uh, and his daughters. Um, uh, and so having to, before he decided to slit his throat. I took this out because it slowed down the story. And it, I, I knew it would make you go, hmm, why did he do that? Uh, it just makes it a little bit silly. So what he actually did was they were in the flat. He saw his wife lying on the floor. He'd strangled her to death. He put a pillow under her head. Uh, he put a, a blanket over her. Uh, he was quite distraught. He was really upset. So uh, they got a little stove in the um, in the room that they lived in. He blocked up the flue pipe with a cushion. He lit the gas stove on oh, uh, so he switched on the gas stove, but he didn't light it, uh, opened all the gas taps uh, and kept the uh, oven door open. So there's neat gas going right through the flat. So kind of interesting, almost like the, the noxious gas he'd been, he's been inhaling all of his life uh, or the, uh, the, uh, the the gases that he'd um, that some people say had caused a lot of the problems when he was on the submarine. Uh, so they filled the room. Uh, oh, it, worth pointing out that this is in the era before they started adding in sulfur into the gas to make you sick. Uh, prior to this era, there were um, you'd switch on the gas, you could kill yourself by just sticking your head in the oven. But so because quite a few people were doing that, they started adding in sulfur in. So before you even inhale enough gas, it starts making you vomit, and then you have to escape, uh, which is added to all gas, which is why all gas smells uh, sulfurous. It's a, it's an added chemical. Uh, so what he did was he closed all the windows and doors and he tried to kill himself. He filled the room full of gas. Uh, even he, one of his neighbours, the neighbour who I mentioned about smelt gas coming through, she knocked, there was no reply at the door. He tried to kill himself, but the problem is because it was a really, really shitty flat and it uh, had lots of leaks, there was a lot of ventilation, uh, so that the, um, the, the gas basically just escaped. He All that happened was he got a bit of a headache. So it, 
so his second attempt was the one I wrote about where he pulled out his razor and he tried to uh, slash his own throat um, uh, and his, he did his wrists as well. Uh, he lay down on the linoleum. linoleum. He lay down on the floor uh, next to his wife uh, while he was bleeding and uh, he was there for about 24 hours and he just he didn't die I mean he he had cut himself quite deeply and he slashed his wrist but he was bleeding but he just wasn't bleeding enough to die he went a bit woozy uh, his heels his blood uh, his wounds healed up and uh, then he was like right I'm going to the police station to hand myself in and he did he went straight to the police station he gave full confession he gave two two statements uh, all of them were, were pretty accurate he I, he was obviously a little bit upset about what he'd done uh he said to the police that he'd strangled her he hadn't he garroted her with the with the fur-lined um uh shoal uh which was proven proven in the investigation but that was fine you know it you know he was upset so obviously there would be some mistakes obviously if you're doing something as traumatic and murdering someone the chance of you remembering all the details are slim it's like people always go, oh, how could you not know that? You were there, you were staring at the person's face. But it's like, you know, if it, if say you're strangling someone, you'd probably be more focused on their eyes or their mouth and less on what your hands are doing. Or, you know, your, your brain would become fixated on one thing. And, you know, afterwards, your brain would play tricks. It would, it would emphasize things more and... Uh, you know our, our memories are not particularly accurate so um to the investigation uh dr john shields pratt uh, acting divisional sur- surgeon attended the scene he saw the body of uh eliza wakefield uh, he said death had taken place about 48 hours previously it was roughly around 36 um her face was blue swollen and there was a hemorrhage from her nostrils uh uh her face was blue uh, right down to the marks on her neck which were consistent with a cord around her neck the cord was attached to either end of a fur neck wrap which was lying over her shoulders loose behind the back of her neck death was by strangulation Uh, when he when uh, Frederick was in the police station obviously um, the doctor had to uh, assess him out because he walked into the police station and Dr Pratt could see that he was bloodied uh, he, you know, he's got. This will be a second slash across his neck because the first one was back in 1927, and he's bleeding from his wrists as well. Uh, he checked the prisoner. Uh, he had a brit an abrasion to the root of his nose, scratch on the left of his neck, uh, which was a deep wound about four inches long. On the left elbow was a two-inch wound, and on his left wrist, uh, as well as another slash on his left wrist all these injuries had been inflicted with a sharp instrument 24 to 48 hours previously uh, all of his injuries were dressed and stitched uh, there was no need to take him to hospital uh, 3:15 p.m with dr tier dr tier was the um uh, pathologist around that time he was working around uh, this would be the final years of uh spilsbury so dr tier was kind of taking over a lot of his work and he primarily worked king's cross area as well uh 3 15 p.m with dr tier at uh this location (coughs) uh eliza was lying on her back arms to the side head turned to the right head near the fireside curb feet to the door she was fully dressed her clothing was not disturbed she was covered with a man's overcoat and an eiderdown with a cushion under her head 
The fur tie was on her shoulders and around her neck. There was no signs of a struggle on her body. Um, no disorder in the room except for a carpet she was on was slightly displaced and a small table in the centre of the room was askew. There were a few drops of blood. A uh, few drops of blood were on the floor a few feet away. Uh, what else did it say in the autopsy? Uh, autopsy was conducted by Dr. Tier. Uh, that was performed at St Pancras Coron uh, Coroner's Court Mortuary. That's the same place where uh, Glyndor Michael uh, ended up and where he was chosen by uh, Bentley Purchase to become uh, the corpse hero. Uh, he said, uh, three inches below her, uh, below the chin, two crescent-shaped abrasions uh, facing down and touching each other, believed to be fingernails were there, uh, with a similar abrasion two and a half inches to the right, two more to the left and in the midline. Uh, they were bruising to the upper lip, um, lower right of mouth with abrasions, on the left knuckle, that's where she had punched him, and that her injuries were where he had punched her. Uh, back of the left hand and middle finger. Uh, she had bruising to the voice box. She died of asphyxiation due to tra strangulation, and injuries suggest that the voice box was pushed from the right, uh, back against the spine. Lovely. Uh, what else do we have? There were, there were uh, uh, witness statements from the neighbours above. Um... The neighbour who was above, she had her uh, her deaf father was living with her at the time, so he didn't hear anything, obviously. Um, but she said she could hear quarrelling at about 10, 10.30 when they came back, and she could hear a lot of banging. Uh, but, you know, she said that was very normal for that flat. They were always, she was always arguing, uh, Eliza was always arguing, there was a lot going on, uh, a lot of arguments, so that she didn't, she just didn't really take much notice of it oh dear lord i'm tired uh, uh she was also the same lady who went past the next day and she smelt gas coming from the room she knocked on the door uh, uh fred didn't want her uh he, he pretended he wasn't in and because uh, he just didn't want to talk to anyone he, he just wanted to curl up and die um there was a bit of an issue a couple of days before i think i said that eliza had uh uh, a bit of a, a criminal record. She'd been uh, charged with disturbing the peace a couple of days before. She'd had an argument with the neighbour upstairs over uh, something to do with a cat. It w wasn't quite clear. Oh, no, a cat. Uh, a cat had, uh, had pissed on the stairs. That's what it was. Uh, a cat had pissed on the stairs. There was a bit of an argument between Eliza and the neighbour upstairs over this. Quite why, I don't know. Uh, that was about it, really. I think I put... I think I put everything pretty much into this story. There's very little I left out. But um, I hope you enjoyed that. That was uh, that was that episode of Murder Mile. I I'm not really going to say much in this because my brain's not working. i got a tea in front of me. I haven't drank my tea. What I'm going to do, because it's so hot today, I think I'm going to do what I did yesterday and just sit in Costa Coffee. Sit in Costa Coffee with my laptop, abuse all their internet, abuse all their free Wi-Fi, uh, and hopefully I won't do what I did yesterday, which was I packed, <laughs> I packed up my laptop and all my bits and pieces and went into Costa Coffee and sat there at the table and was like getting myself ready. And then I went, oh, hang on, this isn't my regular bag. I have, I have a regular rucksack that I use to carry all my stuff around in. And then I have my other works rucksack, uh, which is basically my laundry bag. And I realised I'd put my laptop in my laundry bag. So I was sitting in Costa Coffee with half a bag of dirty pants and socks.
Lovely. So if anyone would have come into that coster at that moment, they would have gone, oh, what's that smell? <laughs> Smells funky. <laughs> so that was that. Right, that was that episode. Oh, yeah. Hope you enjoyed that. I'm going to start editing this, uh, start researching, the, uh, finish researching the next one, which is quite interesting. It's different from the others. Okay, there's another one. Next week's one is the one that I, I another one that I stumbled over accidentally. I think I'd I heard something about it years ago, and I thought, oh, do you know, it's uh, it's outside my remit because originally, you know, all this was Soho, but now because I cover the West End, um, all these murders cover the West End. There's a lot that I can kind of get back into the story. There's a lot of stories that before I thought oh, I can't really do that because it's not in Soho now because I'm doing the West End. There's a lot of stories that I'm like, ooh, ooh, we can get that back in. And this was one that I thought ages ago, oh, this will be nice and different. Uh, so next week's one will be uh, a bit of fun. Anyway, that's that. I'm going to stop wittering and rambling because uh, I've got work to do. Anyway, I <laughs> hope you enjoyed that. Uh, don't forget you can get 20% off all mer- Murder Mile merchandise by uh, typing in Call Me Reg 20 uh, That's only available till the end of August. Uh, hopefully, we're working on it now. Um, uh, through the Threadless store, which is if you go to my merch shop underneath, if you want to buy T-shirts and mugs and you know all things with the Murder Mile logo on, but things because I haven't got space here, I have a Threadless store, so it's on my website. If you go underneath, underneath all my merch, you see a, a link to a Threadless store. Go to there. You can take the Murder Mile logo and you can put it on whatever you like. You can do T-shirts, you can do uh, phone cases, you can do whatever. So it's that's all there. But I'm working with a good old friend of mine. Um, uh, he's a really good artist. We're working on some new ideas, things that are a little bit different. So I've I've thrown him some pictures that I want him to have fun with. He's going to do some photorealistic ones, so uh, we can have some fun. We can have um, uh, we can have some fun with some ideas. But also he's he's come up with some interesting ideas as well for new designs. So uh, we're going to be doing that. We're going to be rolling out some some new products which you can do through the thread, Threadless store, and you can have them as T-shirts or mugs or whatever. And that means I don't have to make the merchandise, which means I don't have to store it. Even even just storing mugs is a nightmare. So uh, that's why I don't do T-shirts, because they're a pain in the ass. Uh, but that will be coming soon. Uh, I, I, I'm guessing by the time we get uh, all the designs together and we get sorted, it'll probably be September, October time, I think. I'll do an advert when it's ready. I've got to set up with the web, web pages and all that. So anyway, that's that done. Right, good. Uh, time to bugger off now. Uh hope you've all enjoyed that. I hope you all have a good day. I hope you stay cool and not sweating like oh dear yesterday was horrific. Uh not sweating our bum bums off. So uh have yourselves a good day and I will speak to you all soon. Lots of love. Bye bye. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com listen. Shopify.com listen.